Uh, as you probably know by now, we're working through the uh, TULIP, the five points of Calvinism as they've been called, and we've walked through, um, I'll put them on the screen just to remind you if you don't remember them, uh, total depravity, unconditional election, uh, we spent a few weeks on limited atonement or particular redemption. Today we are at the I, which is irresistible grace, irresistible grace, and we'll spend at least two or three weeks probably uh, working through uh, what the I uh, means. Uh, Jerry, can you pray for us? And then uh, I think this is a glorious, I think it's all glorious, but this is a glorious uh, mm. truth here to better understand how the Lord worked to bring us to Christ. Yes, and made himself so attractive that it was irresistible. That's just incredible. Let's pray. Father, what a, um, what a joy um, to think about this uh, fantastic doctrine. And Lord, we are so grateful. We are so grateful for um, all five of these points, and we thank you that while we were dead in our transgressions and our sins, you made us alive. You, uh, due to that great love and mercy, um, gripped us out of the miry pit. And Lord, we are um, overwhelmed with, with that today. Lord, we pray that as we talk about um, things that are uh, so much greater than we can even grasp, we pray that we would do so with humility and joy and that our heart would be flooded with uh, thankfulness um, for the irresistible grace that you have given us, the, the undeserved favor um, that you have shown us. And Lord, we pray today that we would leave change, that we wouldn't just be um, hearers of the word, or we wouldn't just even learn this for um, sake of uh, any sort of argument or uh, knowledge, but it would change our life. It would change the way we live, but give us a deeper thankfulness and appreciation um, for all that you've done. And uh, we pray that this, the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would bring you great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to John 6 uh, with us. <clears throat> and before we get to anything here in particular, Jerry, I wanted to ask you, this doctrine is that God, if he so chooses, uh, against what we deserve totally opposite of what we deserve. He can intervene in our life and overcome our resistance to Him, overcome our rebellion, transform our heart and will in such a way that we are truly, freely, and yet necessarily going to choose Christ in response. Yeah. What, what, what effect has this doctrine had on you, and what, what, what should it have on us? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like all of these, it's, it's, it's God's ways are higher than our ways, and God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and so this one certainly is, is too, but... I, I think what's got me lately is just this, the idea that when God changes us and when he shows us this irresistible grace, it, we will always, 100% of the time, race to him because he just shows us who he is. And it's not forced, which is amazing and kind of hard to understand, but it is, you know, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave, Lazarus came out of the grave, and uh, he obeyed God's call. And so this is um, just how thankful I think it should be, it is for all of us, that when he called, it was irresistible. There wasn't a time where we um, could have um, resisted that in any way. And uh, when you see that happen in your own life, which, um, Lord willing, that's happened to most of you, but... When you see it happen in other people's lives, just recently, 
a couple of times. It is just such a glorious thing. And um, it should just give us great thankfulness and joy, I think. Yeah, Greg, any opening thoughts about this topic? Um, yeah, you know, going back to, to last week, you know, in the last emphasis, you know, particular redemption, limited atonement, you know, that one seems a little more difficult to really kind of to unpack because there's concepts, scriptural concepts, like we talked about the high priest making atonement intercession that we have to develop from scripture in order to really appreciate what the New Testament is saying. This one seems more like on the surface to be mm-hmm. clear. Like once you just start seeing what these texts are saying, like it becomes inevitable, um, the, the conclusion that we have to reach. At least in my opinion, like this one just seems to be on the surface easier to, to, to grasp than the previous one that we went over. And so I'm actually excited about that because just basic exegesis of text, just get in the text, look at what they're saying, and it's clear once we see what they're saying, it is also clear what they're not saying. And then this, this doctrine just becomes, it just explodes from everywhere in the Bible. I, I agree. And Greg was reminding us uh, just recently about the, the, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. That's a big mouthful, but it's sort of the Reformed Baptist uh, Confession of Faith from the year, you'll never guess, 1689. It's aptly named, okay? So 1689, this is an old one and a very good one. You'll notice some old English, but uh, it's worth reading what, what solid Reformed Christians in, the, in our Baptist history said on these things when they got together and worked out a creed. We're going to agree with this entirely. Listen to these words here. To those whom God hath predestinated unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. How does God do that? Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by His almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Listen to this, so well written. Yet so as they come most freely, being, now this sounds like a contradiction in terms, but this is consistent with all that we've seen so far in this series. Listen to it again. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing. I believe those two things are both taught in the Bible. Being made willing by His grace. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone not from anything at all foreseen in man, we've covered that, nor from any power or agency in the creature, being wholly passive therein. This is not our doing, this is God's doing. Being dead in sins and trespasses until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead." One last section. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word, this is what we call the general or external call of the gospel, and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ, and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. So that's a lot there, uh, it, but that is worth studying and, and working over. We think that is a well-said statement on this issue. 
And before we get to John 6, let me just mention something uh, real quick. Two, two texts that are often used against what we're arguing for in these weeks. And just two real quick. This one comes from the King James Bible. We've all heard it. Uh, it's the last chapter of the Bible. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one that heareth say, come. And let the one that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. I want to say, we have no problem at all with a verse like this in the Bible. We support it with all of our hearts. Here's the question we've been asking every week. Who is going to will to choose Jesus? That's the question. If you're dead in sin, how are you going to will to choose Jesus? And the answer is, you're not. I'm not left to myself. That's why God had to intervene, take off the blinders, give me new eyes, give me a new heart, and make me willing to, to choose Christ. So it is true that whoever wills will be saved. But who does will? Those whom God chooses to open the eyes against all that they deserve. So that verse does not support what is often called Arminianism, it supports what we're, I believe, what we're teaching. Second verse that's often used against irresistible grace is the end of Stephen's speech in Acts 7. You remember what happens to Stephen? What happens to Stephen? He's stoned to death. And right before he's stoned to death, he says these words. This is Acts 7.51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did so to you. I want to say clearly, we have no problem with a verse like this. We are not teaching that all forms of God's grace cannot be resisted. What we're teaching is this. You know, if you slow down, honestly, and look at a verse like this carefully, look, look at what, look at what uh, Stephen says. What's true of these people? They're uncircumcised in heart and ears. Who is that? That's an unregenerate person, isn't it? So, so long as the Spirit has not granted the gift of the new birth, He has not circumcised our hearts and our ears, opened the eyes of our hearts, what are we going to do? We're going to resist the Holy Spirit every day we are alive. The only thing that's going to make us no longer resist the Spirit but bow our knee to the Spirit is when the Holy Spirit circumcises our heart and changes our ears so that we can hear and appreciate and love the gospel. So if there is a new heart, if we are given a new heart, we will no longer resist but we will be made willing in the day of his power. So verses like this superficially might seem to go against what we're saying. I think read carefully, they actually support the very things that we're arguing for, which is unregenerate people reject the Spirit, but if the Spirit grants a new heart, what will we do? We will, we will receive. We will gladly receive what Christ has done. So now we'll, we'll go to John 6. And I know we've been here before, but it's just so clear on this topic, we had to come back. John chapter 6. And let's go back down to verse 37, just to review a few verses here. Amazing text. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, this is verse 38 of John 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what's that will? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now skip down to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. We'll just stop there. Uh, Greg, can you, can you talk to us about these verses for a moment and show us how this seems to teach? I think it does clearly teach. Uh, the overpowering uh, power of the Spirit in conversion. Yeah, so we're just going to be uh, treading ground, like Mark said, that we've already covered before, but this is ground that needs to be revisited uh, time and again because it is so clear. We, we just start in verse 44. No one can come to me. No one is able to come to me. Okay, that's, that's kind of a, a blanket statement of every person 
No one, no person is able to come to me unless. And so if a person is going to come to Jesus, then whatever follows this unless is necessary for that person to come to Jesus. So no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And so if the father draws a person, that person will come to Christ. The flip of that is if he does not draw that person, that person will not come to Christ. It's the only way you can come to Christ is if the Father draws you. Now, we have to ask the question, is that an effective drawing? Because again, the argument has been, and Mark's done a great job, I think, on your, one of your videos that you did. You talked about this more in depth, maybe, or I know we've talked about it in here too. Um, you know, who is it that's being drawn? The argument often is, well, he's just drawing everybody. Because they look at John 12, where Jesus says, and I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all people to myself. And again, the context in that, in that section is referring to all types of people, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. Why? Because Greeks had just come seeking mm-hmm. Jesus. And it's once the Greeks come, that's when Jesus says, I'm going to draw all people, not just the Jews, but I'm going to draw people from the Gentiles as well. And so this drawing then that's being talked about here in verse 44 isn't exactly the same as it is in John 12. Because they usually try to, people will try to take it and say, well, see, if he draws everybody, then he's drawing here, and therefore it's up to us ultimately. Mm -mm. Look at the connection John makes here uh, in the next half of this verse. He says, and I will raise him up on the last day. Who's the one Jesus is going to raise? The one that the Father draws to Jesus, who therefore comes to Jesus. So catch the connection here. The Father draws, the person comes, Jesus raises them up. What's at the root of that? The Father drawing. It's an unbreakable connection. Everyone the Father draws comes to Jesus. Everyone who comes to Jesus is resurrected on the last day to eternal life. Okay? And so that's the outcome of the Father drawing. It's in in time resurrection into the presence of God forever. So we have to let context here determine what Jesus means by this. Does he mean the Father draws every single individual without exception? No, he does not. Why? Because if that's what he meant, that every single person without exception would be raised to eternal life. And we know clearly from John's own gospel back in chapter 5, that's not going to happen. Jesus already talked about, look at this. This is John chapter 5. Look at... um, Look at verse 24. We'll read through verse 29. Jesus has already set the context for this. One one chapter back, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's talking about effective call, and we could spend time there as well. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. That's, that's a comprehensive all in this case. And they will come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so there's, there's a two types of raising that Jesus is going to do. Some are going to be raised to what? to life, others are going to be raised to judgment. So when Jesus says here, if the father draws you and you come to Jesus, you're going to be raised to, you're going to be raised on the last day. What kind of raising is this? It's a raising to life 
Because this is, this is faith. This is the result of God working and bringing to new life. And the people who do that, whom he draws, they come to Jesus. And because they come to Jesus, there's a certainty. And this is going to get into the perseverance of the saints. There is a certainty that if you put your faith in Jesus, because he's drawn you, that you're going to be raised to life at the end and you'll spend eternity with God. That's good. So back in John 6 here, verse 45, we touched on this again maybe a month or so ago, but Jesus backs up what he's saying in verse 44 with a quote from Isaiah 54. So he's saying the Old Testament teaches this and it's a little complicated. And Isaiah 54 is right after Isaiah 53, suffering servant. Isaiah 54 is describing God's people being gathered back together and Jesus sees the fulfillment of this happening in his people, the church, and he says, here's what's going to happen. They will all, all my true people will be taught by God. So look at this. It says, they will all be taught by God. And then it says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so here, God teaching you to trust in Christ has what kind of success rate? So if you look at the screen, how many of those uh, who are going to be taught by God will respond positively to his teaching and come to Christ in this, in this text. Let's look at it. It says here, they will all, so this, this all here I think is going to be all-inclusive of whoever's taught. Every single person who's taught by God, uh, they will all be taught. Now, who is that? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father. So if God teaches you, you learn from the Father, right? That's the same group. Everyone, every single one who has heard, who has learned, who has heard and learned from the Father does what? Comes to Christ. So no one can come unless the Father draws, and everyone the Father draws or teaches comes to Christ. I think this is one of the most succinct texts on irresistible grace you can find in the Bible. Zero people can come to Christ unless God draws. Every single person God draws or teaches or learns from the Father, every single one, everyone comes to Christ. So there's no uh, 50% success rate. It's not 95% success rate. This is a 0% success rate for those who are not drawn. 0%. No one can come unless the Father draws. And everyone the Father draws, everyone the Father teaches, everyone who's learned from the Father how to trust in Christ, guess what every single one does? They come to Christ. So this is irresistible grace. It, it's a 0% failure rate on God's grace here. When God means to convert someone, God has a 100% success rate in overcoming the resistance of our dead, fallen condition and winning us to Christ. So this is the glory of this truth. This is so glorious. Your conversion really is owing entirely to God's grace in your life. When that hits you, that is the most humbling, radical thought in the world. It wasn't the greatest decision you ever made. It was the decision you never would have made had God not intervened and given you the willingness to come. And when, when you can say, but by the grace of God, what would my life be right now? How can you possibly stand next to the doctrine of irresistible grace and brag? What, what would, think, think for a second, just take 30 seconds. Where would you be today had God not sovereignly overcome your resistance to him at age six or 16 or 35 or 50, whatever age you were? If God had never intervened in your life, where would you be right now? I mean, think about it. Think about sin patterns that were already developing in your life. What would they have blossomed into? Had there never been repentance, conversion, putting sin to death, if your sin just grew to full form without God's intervention, what would your life look like right now? It's, would you be alive today? Would your sin have literally brought you down to the grave and down to hell already? 
The, the thought of God sovereignly saving me when I could not do anything to save myself is a radically humbling and reassuring and glorious truth. So I just want to say, if, if you're working through this series with us, and maybe you're still a little bit on the fence on some of these things, maybe you didn't grow up with it, maybe this is somewhat new, it sounds strange perhaps, you've never heard some of these things, you're, you're, you're processing them, you want to be humble before the text, but you're not 100% convinced one way or the other, I want to invite you to ask God, say, God, if this is true, show it to me and help me to taste the glory of these things. Not just know it in my mind, but to taste the glory that I can't get credit even for my faith in Christ, that even that was a gift of God's mercy in my life. And if you're still in John 6, skip down to verse 64, because he says it again, even if you can say it clearer, he says it again. I don't know if you can say it more clearly. John 6, 64, same section. Jesus said, but there are some of you who what? Do not believe. That's what we all would be left to ourselves. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And, this, and he said, this is why I told you that, here it is again, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Zero people can come to him unless the Father grants the faith and the willingness to come, but everyone whom the Father grants is willing to come. Jerry, reflections on this? Yeah, very humbling. 37 is the same way, isn't it? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Very, uh, very clear and very humbling. Can I ask you, Jerry, if, if somebody uh, is tempted to be arrogant about these truths, let's say that they figured out, they think they see the truth on this, and maybe some of their family members don't know this yet, or maybe some friends of theirs, and, and they, they just feel uh, maybe even a sense of superiority, because, oh, I figured this doctrine out. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I, I just don't think that's an option. I don't think we really, if we're that way, if it somehow makes us proud of anything, then I think we don't understand the doctrine that I would say we haven't understood it at all. Because to whatever degree we understand it, to that degree, we'll grow in humility. We have to, because it wasn't any of our, our doing. And it wasn't that, as we've talked about, it wasn't that Jesus looked down the corridors of uh, time and saw we were going to be quite something. So he's going to pick us. That's just not it. And uh, so, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I can't imagine besides the crucifixion and resurrection itself, a more humbling doctrine. And so if there is pride there, if we are kind of uh, a little hoity-toity about this, I don't think we get it yet. R.C. Sproul said, if, he was asked a question, what do you say to someone who's arrogant about their Reformed theology? His answer is just priceless. He said, tell them to learn Reformed theology. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're arrogant about it, you haven't learned it yet in your heart. If it's just up in your head, you think you can outwit someone in a game of, you know, some sort of competition about the Bible, then you don't understand what you're talking about. Let this sink down into the heart and just radically devastate pride and say, wow, this is all by God's grace. Then let it create worship, and then maybe you're ready to talk to somebody about it. But until it has created humility and worship, I don't think we're in a place where we're ready to talk to somebody about it. We, we, we need to be devastated by this truth and, and led to worship before we try to really communicate it to, uh, to other people. Greg, thoughts about the humility aspect? I mean, I, I just agree with what Jerry said, and I love that Sproul quote. Like, you know, if we get this rightly, like, the last thing we can do is boast. I mean, like, if, if the new covenant is written on our hearts, 
and we have a love for God and we understand what God has done to save us and how ultimately we can't trace it back to us, but to God. We go back to that, the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Mm -hmm. it says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now that either means we boast completely in God or we share some of the boasting. And I don't see any room in those texts, a text like that, Old Testament talks about it the same way. Salvation is of the Lord. And if it's of the Lord, it's not from us. And if it's not from us, we have nothing to boast about. Nothing. I mean, even like you said, the the reference, it was the greatest decision I ever made. We're boasting about something when we say that. I did something that I'm benefiting from. When at the end of the day, even that was not for me. It was from God. So even the greatest decision I ever made was only possible because God gave me the faith to believe, and I wouldn't have had it if he didn't do that. So there is no room for boasting in this. And, and, and I, like, I like what Sproul said. You need to learn Reformed theology. If this makes you proud, you don't get it yet. And so part of understanding this, like, and I think we need to change how we view understanding in this case to go beyond just the intellectual academic grasp to the effect that's supposed to have on, on our character and, and how we feel and how we treat other people. If you get this, it's going to change you. We might acknowledge it as true, but that's not the same thing as this truth seeping into the, our pores and, and saturating us and, and changing us as it's intended to. Just real quick, I don't have a slide for this. Turn with me to Colossians 3 just for one moment. Just, I think it's just really one or two verses But I I think this is, again, you see over and over in the New Testament, God's sovereignty and salvation is connected to the command to be humble, just repeatedly. But look look at Colossians 3.12. This is a wonderful verse. Colossians 3.12. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, as elect ones, holy and beloved, look at what it should create, compassionate hearts. What's next? Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, etc. But look back at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, humility. You see that? Kindness, patience. This doctrine needs to create that in practice. And and I I see that in this church. I see that as people grow in their knowledge of this truth and are moved by this truth, it creates a humility before God, a love for others, and uh, I think it's a wonderful testimony to the truth of it. And I do think that as we're uh, trying to talk to others about this, which I think we ought to, we trust God to move them. Just like it was God who changed us, who gave us irresistible grace, he's going to change they're thinking on this too. We don't have to convince them. We should be convincing. We should make the teaching of our Savior attractive, but we need to watch the Lord work. I remember the man who first shared it with me very graciously, very humbly, convincingly, and uh, then the Word of God went to work on me. And uh, once I first heard it, I thought it was so goofy, and I thought it so... He had to be out to lunch. How could such a solid guy be telling me such nonsense? And then the Bible just started doing surgery on my heart. Like day in and day out, too. It was amazing. And uh, to where these passages, like we just saw, and are continually throughout Scripture, 
just uh, is very convincing. I, in Bible college, I've told y'all, most of my friends would not have agreed with me on this issue. I had one guy, godly guy, 10 years older than me. His name was Jeremiah Dukes. At the time, he was single. He's now married with kids, but he was a single guy, 10 years older than me at, at the college. He led my small group. And he did not agree with me on this issue, but we had some friendly, you know, fun, you know, those fun debates where you get, you get passionate and then you shake hands and hug each other at the end. That, that was kind of how we had these discussions about this issue. I remember one day at the Tacoma Falls parking lot, right near the waterfall, if you've ever been there, we're outside the gift shop and uh, in the heat of the day, and we're, we're going back and forth on this. And I said, I said, Jeremiah, I said, uh, you're a believer and he had a brother who was not. I said, at the end of the day, why did you choose Jesus and your brother has not? And he said, God's grace. I said, you can't say that according to your own theological system, because in your system, you say God gave both you and your brother provenient grace and tried to woo you, but at the end of the day, who makes the decisive call? Your free will. So you can't say the reason you're a believer and your brother's not is because of God's grace. You have to say God gave both people grace, but one chose to accept it and one chose to reject it, which means even though I know, Jeremiah, you don't want to boast about your conversion, I know you love the Lord. You want to give God all glory. That's why you say instinctively God's grace. But I say, according to your own system, you get the credit for your faith. God can't get the credit in the Arminian system for faith. And this is the fundamental issue in, the, in what is called Calvinism. I just want to call it biblical theology, not Calvinism. But in, in the biblical view, what I believe is the biblical view, God gets the glory and the credit for the fact that I believe. And so, listen, this is the, I got to end the story. This is so, so amazing. So we were friends for a couple years, really close for a couple years. And we, we graduated and we moved on. He went to China for a while to try to engage people with the gospel there, teaching English in China which is an amazing story. And uh, he comes back to the States. And one day, I don't know, a couple years later, we, I get a phone call from Jeremiah Dukes. Haven't seen this guy in a long time. Jeremiah, what's happening? He, this is no joke. He goes, I'm chosen by the Lord, brother. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what are you talking about? He's like, the Lord has uh, changed my mind on this whole issue. He's like, I'm chosen by God. I was like, wow. So I, I wasn't even around for all that, but the Lord went to work on him. And about two years later, he, he saw this as a glorious truth. What well, he was arguing against it, you know, two years earlier on the, at the college campus. So it, it takes time, but the Lord can open eyes and show the, the glory of this to all, to all of us. All right. Uh, Real quick, turn with us to Matthew 22. We're just looking at one verse, and it's also on the screen if you don't want to turn all the way there at the moment, but I want to make a distinction here between two ways the Bible talks about the word calling, to be called. Jesus, at the end of a parable, he says in Matthew 22:14, 14, he says, many are called, but few are chosen. So, okay, I, I hope you can see in this verse, it's very clear. Is the group that is called larger then the group that is chosen in that verse is the group that's called big and the group that's chosen small. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in this verse, we would say that the calling referred to here is what theologians call the general or external call of the gospel. So I'll put these definitions on the screen as well. There's two ways the Bible speaks about this calling. The general external call happens anytime anyone tells anyone else to trust Jesus. You just if you, if you meet someone for coffee and say, the Lord has changed my life. Would you please trust in Christ? You have just given the general external call of the gospel to your friend. Is it a guarantee every time we tell someone to trust Christ that they will trust Christ? No, it would be wonderful if we had that ability. We don't have that ability, okay? So the external call does not always produce the effect. Whenever someone urges someone to trust Christ and repent of sin, it may or may not result in conversion. We pray that it does, but not always. Now, here's the way Paul almost always uses the word. The sovereign effective call. The Puritans called it the effectual calling. What is the sovereign effective call? It's whenever God the Holy Spirit uses the external call, preaching or sharing the gospel, 
to bring about new spiritual life and new birth, and this has a 100% success rate. When God sovereignly calls someone from death to life, what do they do? They do like Lazarus did. They get up, and they walk out of the grave. It's a one, when God calls someone sovereignly, like Jesus did to Lazarus physically, we come to life, and we come to Christ every single time. Uh, so so it, the, please understand the difference. And Greg, anything important here about this, we need to keep this distinction in mind between the general call, which is not always effective, and the sovereign call. Yeah, one of the, the problems with the more Arminian perspective is there's typically a conflation of the gospel call, this external call, and God's effectual call. They want to limit it to just one call um, a lot of times. And that's unfortunate because the Bible recognizes two categories of this. Like you said, there's anytime you preach the gospel, I mean, you want, you want another place, look at you know, Luke chapter 24 real quick if you want to turn there. Um, if you don't get there, that's fine. But this is Jesus instructing his disciples uh, after he's risen from the dead. Um, let me see if I can find it. Where's it at? And so he says... Verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's the external gospel call. You're telling who Jesus is. You're, you're, you're getting the facts that he came. He came as a man. He died in the place of sinners so that if any sinner trusts in him, that sinner can be forgiven. And you say, if you trust in him today, you repent of your sins, you will be forgiven. You will be adopted into God's family. You will be guaranteed eternal life. That's the external call. Okay. Anybody can hear that. Anybody can hear it. Okay. Anybody can receive that in terms of, you know, hearing it, understanding it, like intellectually at least, and getting the facts right. But the birds of heaven may come snatch it away. Yes. Well, yeah, the birds of the air. Um, birds of the air could snatch it away. Yeah. Um, and so just preaching that message in and of itself is no guarantee. Okay. God also, and this is where you have to keep the whole of scripture in mind, keep these other doctrines in mind. If, if, if God unconditionally chooses who he's going to save, he, he effectually draws them. Then through that preaching, when you talk about Jesus, God's going to remove the veil as it were, open blind eyes to begin to see the glory of Christ. I want to look at another text. I don't know if we talked about this one. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is one of the most yeah. um, foundational texts uh, in my mind of what happens when a person becomes a believer, when God teaches, when God draws, when someone learns. Um, and so look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, let's just start reading in verse 3. We're going to go through verse 6. This is so important. How is it that the universal gospel call becomes an effectual call that brings someone to Christ. How does, what, what, what happens? How does that happen? Why? It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, this is verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now look at verse 10. This should, when, you, when we read this, this should bring another big passage of Scripture to mind. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so in those whom God has sovereignly chosen, whom he is going to draw, 
What makes the difference? The veil's removed and all of a sudden an unbeliever goes from seeing Jesus as either someone they hate, someone they're indifferent about, just another historical figure who might have been a good man, to seeing what? The glory of God shining in his, through his face. And so that's what ultimately makes the difference. We go from not seeing the glory to seeing the glory. And if you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, which you're only going to get through the gospel, if you see that, you'll come to him. He, God's teaching you. He's showing you, this is my son. This is how glorious he is. And when that happens, change happens inevitably. You can't see this glory and walk away from it. This internal glory that's revealed to the heart. This is uh, chapter uh, five. Look over one verse. What does Paul say here? Verse 16. We, we know verse 17, but let's think about verse 16. This is huge. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Drawing from that same, you know, verse six, talking about the original creation, which God did. When we become born again, when we, when, when, when we come to Christ, it's because we've been raised to new life. A new creation has taken place. And like Paul says, verse 16, once that happens, you can't look at Jesus the way everyone else does. You see him as the beautiful, glorious, powerful, majestic, satisfying, desirable son of God who's the only savior for my sin. Like, that's how it is. Like, I need him. He's, I want him. I know he will save me. And you, you can't say no to that because that's what you now want. When you see beauty on this magnitude, this glory of God in the face of Jesus, it is, it's irresistible because it is all compelling. You can't see this and not be drawn to it. And if God gave this to everyone, everyone would be drawn. And God owes it to no one, but he gives it by sheer grace to those whom he's chosen. Yes. So let's turn to Romans 8. I think uh, Romans 8 is, is so clear on this particular issue of the effective call. Uh, Romans 8, obviously we know these verses well, but I want to look at it from the angle of the effective call. Romans 8, 28. You know, obviously Romans 8, 28 is one of the best known verses in the Bible. It should be. But I, I, sometimes we don't realize the effective call is taught in Romans 8, 28. It's right there. and it is, it, We need to look at it. Uh, Romans 8, 28. Listen to this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You, you see this here? Those who are called in this text are the same as those who love God, which means everybody who's called according to God's purpose is going to have the effect. The result's going to be that we love God. God's call creates a life where we love the Lord. But look at the uh, very next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Now look at this. And those whom he called, he also justified. So here, every single person who's called has what effect? They're justified and they're also glorified. So again, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Jerry, you've, you've, you taught this to me probably first in Bible class back in the day, but this is called the golden chain, right? We, we know about this chain. Every single person who's in any link on this chain is in every part of the chain. You cannot be glorified if God has not first justified you. 
And you will never be justified unless God sovereignly calls you to himself. And he won't call you unless he has predestined you. And he hasn't predestined those except those whom he foreknew, which we've talked about what that means. So if you look at this here, every single person who's called, those whom he called are saved. Those whom he called, he also justified. Again, this cannot be the general call of the gospel because not everyone who hears repent and believe repents and believes. So this call has to create faith that leads to justification. And so this is a sovereign call of God that guarantees the result is a transformed life, faith in the individual, and justification that comes from that faith. And that will eventually lead to uh, glorification uh, in heaven. So Jerry, thoughts? I know you've talked a lot about this section. Thoughts about this yeah. section here? Uh, if you just had this verse alone, it would be um, enough to you know, be convincing. They're exactly the same number of people, all the elect, are those that are in this passage known as foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And nobody slips through the cracks. Nobody's lost. Nobody's gained in the process. It is just that group. Can't be no one because uh, people are in heaven. Can't be everybody because people are in hell. Wide's the way that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. So it, it's the elect. And in uh, that verse 28... Um, is, is really golden as well when you think about those who are called are those that will then love God. And just a parallel text. You see Romans eight twenty eight, those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, now you don't have to turn there. It's a lot of turning, but look at this parallel text. 2 Timothy 1, from, also from Paul. He says, God who saved us, and here's the call again, called us to a holy calling. Now look at this. He saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of what? His own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So again, before time, God chose uh, to give us grace in Christ, and that was going to show up one day with God sovereignly calling us to himself according to his own purpose, which is God's sovereign decree. I'll quote John MacArthur here. John MacArthur says, theologians have called this an effective call. It is the divine summons, it is the divine subpoena, not for judgment and not for punishment, but so that you can be declared righteous, free from condemnation, forgiven. It is the call to salvation. The question is, can it be denied? Can it be resisted? Is there such a thing as non-compliance? Well, Romans 8.30 says, those whom he predestined, he also called. So this is a call limited to the elect. We're not talking here about a general call, just a broad sweeping gospel call. Nor are we talking about Matthew 22, 14, many are called but few are chosen. We're not talking about what we could call the general call of the gospel, the general outward invitation of the gospel. We're talking about something that comes only to the predestined and results in justification. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And that is why it is called an efficacious or an effectual call. And it... We're coming closer to the end here, but if you have a Bible, look at Romans 9, right next to where we're at. Romans 9. Now, we covered the, the broad text here a, a couple months ago, but let's just zero in on verses 10 to 12 again. Remember the twins, Jacob and Esau in the womb? And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. So they'd done absolutely nothing, whether good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might stand. So here's God's purpose and election to come together again, not because of works, but because of what? The one who calls. God's sovereign call. Uh, so, so if you look at the screen here, Jacob and Esau, 
God did not look in the future. They weren't born. He didn't see anything that they were going to do, good or bad, and say, I'm going to choose this one, and I'm going to pass over that one. No, God's choice was independent of any action of either twin because it's unconditional election. And what did God do? To maintain his unconditional purpose in election, it's not according to our works, not because of works, but simply because of God who makes the sovereign call, she was told the older will serve the younger. And if you skip down to verse 18, I know this is the intense part of the doctrine here, but it's, it's right here. So then uh, he, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to, the, say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And the answer is no one can ultimately resist his sovereign will. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? So ultimately, when it comes to God's sovereignty in both uh, mercy and hardening, uh, we cannot resist his sovereign ultimate will there. Um, all right, let, let's come to a close here with Ephesians 4. If you, if you can turn with me to the right to Ephesians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I've got two more quotes from a couple other theologians. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology says it like this. Very concise definition. Effective calling is an act of God the Father, speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel, in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. And J.I. Packer. Original sin renders all human beings naturally dead or unresponsive to God, but in effectual calling, God quickens the dead. As the outward call of God to faith in Christ is communicated through the reading, preaching, and explaining of the contents of the Bible, the Holy Spirit enlightens and renews the heart of elect sinners so that they understand the gospel and embrace it as truth from God, and God in Christ becomes to them an object of desire and affection. So Ephesians chapter 4, Jerry, can you read for us the first six verses? I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There are just a couple of reflections about the character traits, again, that we see here. Four times, if you look on the screen under, in red here, four times we hear about the effectual call of God. And Paul thinks, I mean, can you imagine writing something as short as six verses and referring to a doctrine four times? He refers to effectual calling no less than four times in six verses. And does it have major application? Should understanding this divine summons to life when we were dead affect how we treat each other? Yeah, Jerry, what are, what are some of the things we see here? Yeah, humility and gentleness, patience. How about that bearing with one another in love? And so, yeah, he, he unites the two. And once again, you can't have uh, one you don't truly understand the um, irresist irresistible grace, God's call, his effectual call, without these things growing in us. And and all of us would have to admit that they need to grow more. We want to be more like these things, and the better we understand it, that's why we study it. That's why we enjoy it, and that's why we um, pray that God will use it to, to increase our humility. Can you pray for us, Jerry? Yep. Father, we are so thankful. What a um, way to finish on this. Uh, we thank you for the effectual call. Um, laced throughout Scripture, 
We thank you for the general call, the gospel call. Someone gave us the, the good news, and they were faithful. They, with beautiful feet, um, came to us with the gospel. Somebody sent them. Someone uh, preached so that we could hear, so we could believe, so we could call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And now that we are, Father, we realize that it wasn't us at all. It was, it was you. It was you who called us. And for that, we're so grateful. We're overwhelmed with uh, that kind of grace. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, share this and uh, phenomenal truths with others, that we'd be quicker to give the gospel call to all and then see you do such a powerful work to call those that you have chosen before the beginning of time to themselves. And Lord, today we uh, pray that we wouldn't, again, just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers as well and grow in humility and gentleness, bearing with one another in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.